Thank you to everyone joining us online and here at the Cheech Marin Center for Chicano Art and Culture at the Riverside Art Museum. I'm Naledi Makene, Public Programs Coordinator at Zocalo Public Square in Arizona State University Media Enterprise. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to each other. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and present conversations like this one. We were founded in 2003 and are currently celebrating our 20th year. You can find us at zocalopublicsquare.org on podcast platforms and YouTube. So please subscribe for our latest programs. Tonight, we are excited to launch a new series asking, what is a good job now? With the support of the James Irvine Foundation. We're focusing on workers in the low wage sectors of California's economy through public programs and first-person essays that explore how to make the hardest jobs more rewarding and make life better for those who do them. And tonight, we're starting off by asking, what is a good tourism job now? I am pleased to introduce our moderator, Elizabeth Aguilera. Elizabeth is an award-winning independent journalist who joined Zocalo Public Square as an editor-at-large in 2023. She focuses on the intersection of policy and people related to health, children, environmental health, and other topics. She is a former staff writer at Cal Matters, where she covered the health and welfare of children and healthcare policy and co-hosted a political podcast. Elizabeth co-founded the Independent Migratory Notes newsletter, a weekly look at immigration news written with context and analysis that published for four years. She is also reported for KPCC Public Radio, now known as LAist, the San Diego Union Tribune, and the Denver Post. She graduated from the University of Southern California and Pepperdine University. Elizabeth, over to you. Hello, thank you, Naledi, for that great introduction. Um, hello, everyone, welcome, and thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, I'm Elizabeth Aguilera, and I'm a longtime journalist and an editor at large at Zocalo. And I'm pleased to announce our panelists and jump right into the conversation. So for a start with Leslie, to my left. Uh, Leslie Butler has been a faculty member with the Collins College of Hospitality Management at Cal Poly Pomona since the fall of 1992. She holds a bachelor's degree of science, a bachelor of science degree from Cal Poly Pomona and a master of arts in education with an emphasis in career and technical education from Cal State San Bernardino. Leslie's area of exper expertise is food and beverage management. Leslie has previously worked with Forbco Management, which um, oversaw or owned Sizzlers, and Romacor, which, uh, which owns the Tony Roma restaurants. While working in management with Romacor, Leslie helped to train managers and employees for new store openings and managed the kitchen, the bar, and the service staff before returning to her alma mater to teach uh, in the industry there. Our Next uh, panelist is Saru Jayaraman, and she is an academic at UC Berkeley and the president of One Fair Wage. Uh, it's a national organization working to raise wages for service workers nationwide. She was named one of CNN's top visionary women. She is White House Champion of Change, a James Beard Foundation Leadership Award winner, and the San Francisco Chronicles Visionary of the Year. Saru is the author of Behind the Kitchen Door, 
forked a new standard for American dining and one fair wage, ending sub-minimum pay in America, and has appeared on MSNBC, HBO, PBS, CBS, and CNN. And Ralph Prado is also joining us, and he's worked in a variety of roles in several Southern California restaurants for nearly a decade since he was 22 years old. And uh, Ralph is also a new dad, which I think he'll tell us about. (laughs) And uh, I'll also let him share more about his experience during this conversation. And then, as Naledi mentioned, we'll be taking questions from the audience later on in the program. And if you're watching online, you can submit questions in the live chat on YouTube. And with that, we'll uh, start our conversation. So I want to just mention that we wanted to talk about tourism and service in Riverside County because the industry here has grown tremendously in the last couple of decades with Coachella and other music and entertainment festivals, as well as, of course, the tourism that is attracted to Palm Springs and golf courses, casinos, the beautiful Mission Inn, which is across the street, and now even here, the Cheech, where we are tonight. Um, People come from all over Southern California and other places for all of these reasons. Um, We can't talk about this without mentioning the impact of the pandemic in the last few years on leisure and hospitality and workers. And so that's where we want to address our attention tonight. But I also want to mention that overall in Riverside County, while California's population has been shrinking, Riverside County has been in the top 10 counties in California that is actually growing. So it's home to 2.5 million people. A quarter of them are children under 18. People are moving here, and they're finding that while it is a more affordable place than maybe neighboring counties, if you're in service and tourism, it is still very expensive because many people earn the minimum wage. So let's talk about service workers. And I want to start with Saru. Talk to us about wage history so that we kind of start with where and how did this get set up? Yeah, so um, thanks for having me. Thanks all for being here. Very happy to be with Leslie and Ralph uh, from One Fair Wage. Want to acknowledge people from One Fair Wage in the room as well, uh, Adrienne and Lydia and others. Um, so uh, look, Tipping as a practice originated in, in feudal Europe. It was something that aristocrats and nobles gave to serfs and vassals, always on top of a wage. And I, and I think it's important to start there because uh, wages are very low in this industry. The industry is one of the largest and fastest growing private sector employers in Riverside, in California, and across the country. But it's been the lowest paying employer in the United States for generations dating all the way back to emancipation, which is the moment at which that idea of tipping was mutated from being an extra or bonus on top of a wage as it had been in feudal Europe to becoming a replacement for wages as a way because restaurants wanted the ability to hire newly freed black people, black women in particular, not pay them anything at all and have them live exclusively on this new thing that had just come from Europe called tips. And I want to say we as American restaurants uniquely mutated tipping at that moment because all along through world history, everywhere else, tipping had always been this bonus on top of a wage. But we used it as a way to basically supplant wages. And so wages in this country started at zero for restaurant workers and have gone up nationally to $2.13 an hour for tipped workers. And although California doesn't have that sub-minimum wage, even that $15.50, which is the minimum wage here is a direct result of that original suppression of the wage that has lasted. Because what happened in there that I didn't mention is that in 1919, an entity was formed called
called the National Restaurant Association. We call it the other NRA. It has had an express intent, mission, and purpose. In 1919, it was founded with the intent of suppressing, in particular, black workers' wages, and it has fought against wage increases for the last 100, over 100 years. Uh, and, you know, we deal with them on a daily basis, but um, they have been around fighting against wage increases and have artificially suppressed wages in this industry for a very long time. So that, that's really helpful to know when we tell us a little bit more than bring us to Riverside County and California specifically in terms of tourism and service and what that has looked like. Yeah. So I mentioned that California, I'm sorry, you know, uh, the restaurant industry is one of the largest and fastest growing private sector employers with almost 14 million workers pre-pandemic. Nearly That's two national, right? national, That's national. Nearly 2 million of that 14 million are here in the state of California. Um, tens of thousands here in Riverside. And uh, we, so we have the largest and fastest growing restaurant industry in the country with also the highest wages, which 1550, as we're going to talk about in a minute for Riverside, is literally less than half of what it actually costs a person to live in Riverside. But 1550 is still much higher than the rest of the country. Uh, and yet we, you know, for all the arguments that raising wages kills business, kills the industry. We have the highest wages and the largest and fastest growing restaurant industry. So I do want to say about Riverside, you know, because the numbers have even gone up since the last time we prepped for this panel. It's crazy. The cost of living in Riverside and California just continues to skyrocket. So if you look at the MIT living wage calculator, you can look county by county. And let's assume you're one person in a two-parent, two-child household, which is being conservative because a lot of service workers are single mothers or single parents. But let's say you have two parents, one person in a two-parent household. MIT living wage calculator, which takes into account rent, housing, and transportation, and food in a locality, says it costs a minimum of $41. Now, it was $38 two weeks ago. $41. For one person to cover, I'm not talking about taking your children to Disneyland or having Christmas gifts. It is just covering food, rent, transportation, gas, $41 for one person in a two-parent household. On that same page, it tells you what do food service workers make in Riverside County. They make $16 an hour. $15.50 is the minimum wage. The median wage for service workers in Riverside County is $16 when the wage it costs to live in a two-parent household is $41. So yes, we have a booming industry. Yes, we have higher wages than other states. Yes, Riverside has a beautiful tourist economy, lots of hospitality. And yet, workers are facing just absolute poverty and inability to cover their costs. And what does that mean? It means that, I talked about history, we're actually in a very historic moment right now. Millions of workers, 1.2 million workers have left this industry during the pandemic. Millions more are leaving. 60% of workers we've surveyed in California have said, we are leaving. 80% say the only thing that would make me come back to the restaurant industry is a full livable wage. I just can't do it anymore. When your wage doesn't barely cover the cost of your gas to get to work, you're not going to pay more to get to work than you get when you get there. Right, right. Well, we're going to come back to that thought, yeah. because, but I want to jump to Leslie now because you shared something with us recently. Tell us about the uh, changing workforce in the service industry. You know, I think people have a perception that often these jobs are students or younger folks. What have you seen change uh, in this industry? 
What I can say is that um, we're seeing a lot of more older workers continuing in those positions that were really never meant for them to be there supporting a household. It was meant for, it was their starter job. It was the job to get them through high school, to get them through college, to something else. Um, so it was never meant for them to be in that job for you know, their lifetime. And I think um, that's why we're struggling with uh, the, the pay because it wasn't meant to be a pay that was supposed to support you know, a family. Understanding the, his, the history of the pay and, and why it is the way it is, it, it, it still doesn't, it, it's not meant for adults really that are trying to raise a family. That's not to say that our industry is not doing great things for people working in those jobs to progress in the field. Um, there are companies that are offering um, ways people can increase their educational level through college, through tuition reimbursement, and things like that. So those hourly uh, low-paying jobs aren't their future. It's just where they are at this time. So if you want to go to college, if you want to learn a trade, whatever you want to do, there, there are these big companies, McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, um, Chipotle, that are paying tuition reimbursement for people to better their educational levels so that or skill set that they can make more money than what they're making currently. Do you know, Leslie, why it changed from sort of a starter job to now being something that people stay in longer or are now raising families? Like, what changed to, to contribute to that change? I think, um, especially for front of the house team members that are tipped employees, they can make 35, 40, 50, depending on what night of the week some really good money. And so you get comfortable with that fast cash in hand. And um, the next thing you know, years have passed, a decade's passed. Oh, now I have kids, I'm getting married, and I'm still doing this job that is an hourly position and I'm dependent on the guests to help sustain my lifestyle. And it, the time just passes before they know it, I think, and that's why they are now, you know, in an, uh, at an older age. And, and the pandemic was really eye-opening because those workers that were tipped, those restaurants closed those doors. We couldn't serve in person. Uh, we couldn't serve people inside of a restaurant. And so now they went from an essential worker uh, making this amount of money to now you're laid off. Right and you're collecting unemployment, if you could collect unemployment, yeah, right. um, depending on what your status was. Yeah, so the pandemic really brought a lot of challenges. It, it was eye-opening. And so um, much of what was said, those, those older workers had to make decisions. That, that was our seasoned team. They had to make a decision. Do I wait until everything opens and jump right back in? Or this might be the time for us, for me to make a change. Mm -hmm. And that's where we lost some of those um, team members right. to other industries. Well, I want to get more specific because it's easy to talk about California paying fifteen fifty an hour, although in other states they don't do that and tipped employees. But I want to learn more about the challenges for low-wage workers in the service and tourism industry. You know, what is life like? What are the stories that you hear, Ralph? We definitely want to hear your um, perspective on this. You know, what kinds of decisions are workers making to sustain these jobs or maybe think about leaving them? 
Uh, so uh, prior to me having the child, I was able to live on a very small budget and uh, I could work around whatever work I could get and it was, that was okay for me. Uh, once I had the, my son, I definitely had to you know, reconsider how much money I was making, uh, how much my time is worth as well. Uh, getting paid a low wage and suffering from like, anxiety from a job when I'm not even a managerial position. Uh, spilling over into my home life just wasn't working. So I did leave my last job because of that reason. I'm really glad I did. Now I have a higher paying job that I afford more time with my son. It's better quality time. I'm not stressed out. I'm not anxious or, or angry. And, um, but even then, I am still considering, you know, is this industry still good for me with that son? Is this sustainable f for the future? Do I have to keep working two jobs? Do I have to find the right combination of jobs? And so, yeah, I can't afford to just live on a very small budget anymore. And so you, 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 you already gave the example of the MIT living wage calculator, which I had some notes on, but I want to just jump into, um, I know the organization One Fair Wage that you lead is working on this issue across the country, but tell us about the efforts in California to raise the minimum wage. Um, what can you tell us about the status? Is there legislation? And then also, if you can touch on um, how this, I know, of course, the National Restaurant Association, the California Restaurant Association, they definitely have an opinion about this uh, policy proposal. But what does it also mean for other industries who may then realize what they pay their workers is now minimum wage and therefore they have to raise wages? So what is the ripple effect of that as well? Yeah, first I just want to um, uh, kind of talk about some of the stuff Leslie talked about or, you know, respond to it because first I want to say we may be seeing a shift in some ways, certainly with the pandemic, which I want to share, but the industry has never been teenagers. I do want to say, even pre-pandemic for the last many decades, uh, the industry was always about 40%, 24 and under, 60% adults. And for many, many decades, we've seen the median age in the restaurant industry nationally and in California being actually around 35, and that most people like Ralph have children, and they're trying to feed their children on these wages. Um, and I don't, I understand that there is a feeling that these are starter jobs, you know, but it doesn't have to be that way, you know. Uh, there's a part of the history I didn't share, which is that when tipping first came to the U.S., ac Americans actually rejected it. They said, this is feudal, we don't like it, we're a democracy, we think employers should pay their workers. And that populist movement against tipping spread to Europe. The European labor movement picked it up with the rallying cry of, we are professionals, we don't need your tips. We get paid as professionals by our employers. And so you see wages in Europe, a minimum wage in Amsterdam, for example, of 21, 22, $23 an hour in Burger King. And you ask why, and it's because people say, I'm a professional, I'm a skilled professional. I cook, I'm a professional. I serve, I'm a professional. You can go to Cordon Bleu not just to be a chef, but to be a server, a professional career server or a professional career cook. And so the idea that these are starter jobs, I think, is a reflection of the history and the wage structure, not a reflection of the skill and dignity and professionalism of these workers, which I think is reflected in the fact that you teach in a school, you know, in a college. And so 
what does it mean for it to be a profession? It means that you can learn a skill and, and exhibit that professionalism. So the fact that these are not paid well enough to have families is not a reflection of the skill and dignity of profession, professionalism of the workers or their value to society. It's a reflection of history and politics. And I want to be very clear about that. So what does that mean um, yes, for well, politics? Yeah, how, how does that then lead to Bring us back our here. current policy situation Yes, yeah, so it means and that efforts around yeah, for many, the minimum wage? For many, many decades, Decades, we've had a suppressed minimum wage in this country. Actually, the federal minimum wage has been suppressed since 2009. Here in California, it's been nearly a decade since we have raised the minimum wage substantially. And uh, 1550, which is the current minimum wage in California, is just not enough to live on anywhere in California. The cheapest county in California is Modoc County, where the minimum that it takes to live for one person, a two-parent household with two children is $24 an hour. So we are moving, advancing policy together with a large coalition of organizations to raise the minimum wage in California closer to what it actually costs to live, which is between $22 and $24 an hour, and working also to end that last sub-minimum wage in California, which is the sub-minimum wage for incarcerated workers. A third of our firefighting workforce fighting our wildfires saving our lives, our incarcerated people paid 33 cents an hour, risking their lives for ours. And so we are saying anybody who works in the state of California should be paid a, wa a wage that allows them to feed their family. Uh, if we want them to feed us in restaurants and in hospitality, we have to make sure they can feed their kids as well. So I, I do want to, can you talk about though what that effort looks like? Because often we see these movements and it takes years or yes. do you feel optimistic that it's going to happen? <laughs> yes. And what is the ripple effect to other industries? Because clearly not just the California Restaurant Association or the National Restaurant Association are going to have an opinion about this. It's true that they're not the only ones that are going to have opinion, but they have been the loudest voice since 1919 preventing minimum wage increases across the country and in California. And it is because of money that they actually took from workers. So um, in 2011, state, then State Senator Alex Padilla got a bill passed here in California that requires every worker in the state, Ralph has taken this training, to take a food safety training. They, they own a monopoly food safety training called Serve Safe. And a couple of years ago, we got leaked documents from inside the National Restaurant Association that they actually took that money that so many workers paid to serve safe and used it to balloon their lobbying budget to fight minimum wage increases to $80 million a year. And that is what they've been using. Workers unknowingly have been funding lobbying against their own wage increases year after year after year. And when I say these wages have been artificially suppressed. When you have a lobby that's been around for 100 years with an $80 million a year budget, and they've been telling all of us, there's no way we can raise wages, business, everybody will go out of business, uh, everybody believes, we all think that because they've done a very good job spending that money on marketing, right? When in fact, there are, I do have to say, there are fabulous restaurant owners here in Riverside and across California that have always paid a livable wage, that have paid more, that are showing it can be done. They're often independent restaurants. 
uh, not chains, but there are folks doing it and proving that it can be done and you don't go out of business. Particularly post-pandemic, we're seeing hundreds of restaurants across California raise wages to recruit staff in the midst of the worst staffing crisis in the history of the industry. So my answer is I feel very optimistic. We think we can get this done by next year because there is such a massive staffing crisis that I think even the industry, even the Restaurant Association, recognizes that unless things change, we're just not going to have enough people willing to work for 1550 anymore. Right, and that um, food service test, or the food service course that Saru was mentioning is called, was called ServeSafe, which they still own, but there are other companies, but I think a lot of folks don't know about these That's other right. companies, or restaurants don't even know to direct their potential employees. So those, and I, it's a $15 fee, and I know that because I've paid it for young relatives who have had to take this course before starting a job, you know, whether it's in fast food or at a restaurant, so I just wanted to mention that. I did want to also talk about the worker shortage, because you talk about the fact that restaurants are... Some are paying more, and I was reading about restaurants here in Riverside that are offering $20 or $30 an hour. Um, they're offering flexibility, and they say they still are not able to hire, to the point that one woman talked about hiring a robot to, to deliver food in her restaurant. So how, how does the shortage come into this discussion? Do folks come back to the industry? Have they moved on to something else? I know yeah. the California, the Public Policy Institute of California reported last year that here in the Inland Empire, thousands of transportation and warehouse jobs sort of filled that gap as that industry grew during the pandemic. So do people come back? Is that where they went? Yeah. Um, you know, what are you hearing? On Why don't you side? start and then I can what give some think, data. Well, in, in, yeah. in my experience, I've seen just people exiting and not really returning. And I see people lower... Uh, lower level people doing the work of the people above them, not necessarily getting paid for it. And it's every place I've been at, I've had that experience or I'm feeling it for somebody else. Maybe I get the raise, maybe I don't. And I definitely use it to laterally move to another job. And that's how I've continued my series of jobs by doing exactly that. By getting the experience, getting experience. even though you don't get the pay and then being able to. Yeah. And, and that, doing that for long enough, uh, at a certain point, it has to be, I have to find a place that's worth it for my time and everything like that. So where I'm at now is, is good, but it's not perfect. And I probably will have to get a second job to make it perfect. <laughs> I do have to say, oh, go ahead, Leslie. No, I was just going to say, too, it's, it's not, if I can just speak on the SurfSafe. Yes. SurfSafe is a huge company. Um, but honestly, I think we want to have some kind of safety uh, test given to our employees because we're going to ingest the food they're making. And if they're not following proper, and I'm not brainwashed because I'm in the industry, I'm just telling you you want to be safe in that way. Yeah. And there are other ways to get that certification and SurfSafe is just one. So Riverside, as an example, goes through the county to get their certification. So, totally. I mean, there's, there's other options for that. I also want to say that um, regarding do people, people are leaving, but then I also know that um, this is a tipping part the tipped employees like that fast money. And while they may have other industry jobs, they are also part-timing still in their restaurant that they've worked at for years. They're the 35-year-olds that you talked about, average age. They have other full-time jobs, but they keep that side job because of that money that they can bring in. And I appreciate what you're saying about um, National Restaurant Association and California Restaurant Association and all of the lobbying that they're doing to stop this suppression. But I think we really have to think about why does it cost so much to live in the state of California? You know, why and why is now not only the restaurant industry or hospitality industry, but all industries now having to do 
pay more to their employees just so that they can have a lifestyle that's sustainable in our state? That's the question that I think we really need to answer. Because in my opinion, uh, while yes, this route of how we pay our employees dates way back to a time that my parents can probably talk about, but um, you know, we are making improvements. I think we have to take those wins and know that um, change is coming. Uh, we just, in, by 2023, fast food workers are gonna be making, in some places, up to $22 an hour if there are over 100 employees. That's change, that's significant change. But when we see those increases, we, we will know that we will all see those increases because we're gonna pay more for our goods and services. And we have to be okay with that. Well, that's part of it too. The consumer side of this discussion is knowing why and how that's happened, right? And, and appreciating the work that people do. And I wanted to ask the question because it seems like the pandemic, of course, highlighted lots of workers, these essential workers that maybe people didn't quite think about before, including your tourism workers, your hotel, your restaurant, your fast food folks who continued to work during that time if they could and who, you know, people became more aware of. But also there's been a lot of stories about mistreatment of those workers by customers, right, by consumers who maybe have to wait longer because there isn't enough staff or who get upset about things they think is someone's fault. Is that also contributing to what we're seeing right now in terms of both wanting a more fair wage but also maybe the shortage? Yeah. You want to talk about that? Realm yeah, I think, I, I think having dignified work is, you should be valuing dignified work. I think a lot of employees I've worked with, they say, oh, that's just how the job is. These are the customers you just have to deal with. You just, you got to eat crow. But, uh, and because that is just how it is. But I don't think it has to be that way. Uh, I, I, I don't, I for myself choose not to accept that. And so I have moved from other jobs. I know plenty of people that just deal with it or this is a good enough job for them and it is okay. And certain people, it's not okay, and then they will, will never come back. But for those people that stick in it, I really feel for them because they just they just deal with it, and they eat it. And I. I... So if I can say from the um, educational perspective, like Saru mentioned, our work is important work. What we do at our college, we are um, we are building new leadership. Uh, we're building not only leadership, but future owners and operators of, of hospitality operations. We take it seriously. We take it very seriously. And um, one of the things that I impress upon students in classes that I teach is to value your team member, value in the work that they do, um, how much control, if you're not the owner, you have and how much they make is another story, but you can value their work, um, dignified work. Um, not a, but a lot of the reasons why maybe you, Ralph, experience some negativity is because you, in our industry, there is lack of experience, lack of leadership experience. And, um, uh, and, and we saw that really after the pandemic because a lot of those workers who weren't uh, trained to be in a leadership position, were brought up from the ranks, lacked that skill and training and caused toxic environments and um, not only for their employees but for their guests. And so um, we're, going back, we train professionals. We're training people to be our future leaders. And um, one of the things I impress is to take care of your team member. Front, um, restaurant operations, front of the house, back of the house, they're all very important. No one person should be recognized 
at a higher level than another. They're recognized on the work that they do while they're in that building. And so I know there's lots of history, there's lots of negativity, but we can only make change moving forward. And I appreciate the work that you're doing to make that change moving forward. But, but we, what we're seeing now is um, automation, you know, and taking, taking the human factor out. Now we're managing machines, we're managing technology to deliver the service to our guests so that we can cut back on some of the labor costs. And maybe the ones that are there, we can pay them a higher rate of pay. But $40, I don't know where that number's, I know where the number came from, but I don't know where the number's coming from when it's time, you know, to write the check. You're right, and not just the robot that someone had talked about hiring for the restaurant, but also sometimes you go in and you have to, or you order on an, on an iPad, or you now do it on your QR code. Um, so I think Can that's I, interesting. And Leslie, go ahead. I Sarah. do want to speak to the pandemic, if I could, um, because I do think that is, it's just so critical to understand the historic break that occurred with the pandemic and the taking what Ralph said at scale, which is that millions of workers for the first time are really recognizing their self-worth and that they are worth more than this. So with the pandemic, six million restaurant workers lost their jobs nationally, several hundred thousand in California. Two thirds of those workers reported having severe trouble accessing unemployment insurance, some because of status, some because of the way that they were paid. Tips were very hard to, for the state to calculate towards unemployment insurance benefits. Um, that is why tipped workers every year have a hard time with credit. And I mean, it's just not a reliable source of income. Uh, and so uh, a lot of people were forced back to work in the summer of 2020 before they felt safe. UCSF named restaurants the most dangerous place to work above hospitals. And so people didn't feel safe, but they felt they had to go back because a lot of people couldn't get benefits. So they went back in the summer of 2020. They found that tips had gone way down. 60% of workers we surveyed in California said their tips had gone down 50% or more because sales had gone down. Yeah, uh, and then they said harassment went way up. More than half of all workers reported. And we, by the way, have the highest rates of sexual harassment of any industry in the United States already because it's uh, a lot of women uh, having to put up with anything and everything because the customer is always right. Uh, and so, um, yeah, and so uh, women, more than half of women reported that harassment went up during the pandemic and thousands of women reported, I'm regularly asked, take off your mask so I can see how cute you are before I decide how much I want to tip you. Take off your mask so I can see the pretty face of my server before I decide how much I want to tip. Which just blew away the idea that tipping in the United States and in California is based on the quality of your service. The data shows irrefutably so tipping, unfortunately, in this country is actually correlated with the race and gender of the server. A black woman always gets tipped less than a white man, even when she provides perf what they call perfect service. Uh, if she is you know, fair-skinned, fair-haired, or the man is, they always get tipped more. The data is irrefutable on this now. And so uh, people said, you know, if I'm having to put up with so much more for less tips, more hostility, and on top of that, now I'm being asked to enforce COVID protocols on the same people I'm supposed to please, that I'm supposed to get tips from, I'm supposed to tell them where, you know, wear a mask, sit six feet apart, show me, you know, your vaccination card. I mean, 
they were never paid enough for the original job, and now they were asked, they're asked to do two jobs, be a public health professional and a, a restaurant professional at the same time. It was, a, it was a breaking point for millions of workers, and that is why so many left. So we say it's not a worker shortage. It's a wage shortage. It's that people want to... It's, it's like somebody said during the pandemic, as if you're saying there's a shortage of BMWs for a dollar. It's not that there's a shortage of BMWs, that you cannot find a BMW for a dollar. And that's true now, too. When the cost of gas going up to six, seven dollars an hour, who's going to go to work for 15 dollars an hour? You know, uh, it, it, it's not that there aren't people who love this industry. And I think your work exempt people take great pride. Ralph takes pride. People take great pride in working in hospitality. It's not that they don't want to do it. It's that they actually can't afford to do it anymore. And so the only way we can have the industry we want is to pay people enough to be able to do the jobs we want them to do. And I, I hear you that it's going to be hard to move to a $40 wage, but I think you said it. I've tracked, we've tracked on Indeed postings. There are restaurants in Riverside County offering 30 and 35 and 40. They're doing it and they're figuring out a way to make it work. And I agree with you, there's going to have to be some give and take, but not, I, you know, the thing is menu prices have already been going up without worker wages going up because the cost of food has been going up and transportation and gas. The only element we have not increased is the human cost. That's the only one that's remained the same. And those humans are facing the same cost of eggs in the grocery store that the rest of us are facing. Right, right. Let's hear, Ralph, tell us about what would change for you if this effort by One Fair Wage is successful? Or for people that you know, I mean, you've been in the industry for nearly a decade. I'm sure you have many friends and know folks who are at all levels in the industry. You know, what changes for you personally or for them? Uh, for me personally, we can get some more, some independence with our family. We live in a multi-generational family household, which is great, but it would be nice to have our own place, you know, lo locally, hopefully, which also comes with the cost. You know, if having to live close to family would be nice, but it is also very expensive. You know, and instead of coming out to Riverside, Moreno Valley, and having to drive, you know, and have that gas cost. But yeah, definitely afford us more, uh, I don't know, ease, ease, of, ease of living, like even more comfortable, not stressed out. Uh, we can afford childcare. We don't have to worry about uh, conflicting schedules. And uh, plenty of people that I know that have been working in the industry, well, a lot of people are either, you know, they're not satisfied with the wage and they're just out, or other people are, they're just, I'm okay with this. This is good enough for me. If you give me more, I'll take it, but they're just, I'm, I'm just going to be here anyway. And the cost of living for them goes up. Uh, that's, that's something I was frustrated with, that the cost of all the food, everything else went up, prices on menus went up, but none of our wages went up either. That was unbelievable that they're saying, we can't afford these people, but now we have these higher prices, we can increase their menu prices, but now your wages are going to stay the same. Right, you're seeing menu prices Insane. rise, and you're... And people are probably saying, wow, this is more expensive than the last time I came here. But you're not seeing any of that, no, right? It's not to the business. Leslie, last uh, question, because then we're going to take questions from the audience. Can you, do you hear about this from your alumni or from your students currently? Like, how are they going into this business? Many, I'm assuming, are going into managerial or supervisory roles. Or maybe they're going to be entrepreneurs. But how do they balance this and thinking about their own wage when they come out of school, but also managing low wage and the equity of that? They're positive about it because they're in a place that they know is going to provide them with some mobility, some access to something more than what they have. Um, as far as the industry is concerned and as far as just talking about the, the, the mandates from the pandemic, I mean, that our hands were tied. Like, this came from the state. 
that said, this is what we have to do. And so it's interesting you brought that point up because while my class is a lecture-based class, I treat it as a seminar class and I get the input from the students. What are you guys seeing? What's happening? And I say to them, okay, now in a position of leadership, you should never allow your team members to take any brunt of what is being asked of restaurants to do. They shouldn't be the gatekeeper for, for uh, vaccination cards. Um, they shouldn't be harassed by their uh, guests. And if they are, they should feel confident enough to come to you as a manager, as a leader, and say, this is happening. What are you going to do? And you need to be able to step up and say, this guest is gone. You're out of here. You're, you're never welcome back in our building. And that's leadership. That's what we're teaching our students. So what do I, how do they handle it? They handle it because they know that they're getting an education. They know that uh, we have companies that are recruiting our students um, through the career fair, hospitality, restaurant, hotels, event management, uh, IT people like you see here that they're coming after our students because they know the value in what we're teaching our students. And so they have a positive outlook. And what, what happens when they're at a certain age and they say, I, I can't do this anymore, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I've been hospitable, I love people, I've been nice, and now I'm just done. And the transferable nature of our degree allows them to make those kinds of changes. Right. So um, they're positive, if I can say, from well, my experience in talking with the students. Well, thank you. I, we could keep talking for another few hours, but I want to open it to questions um, and take the opportunity to listen to our audience or those who are watching online. Um, I know there's microphones. Here we go. Yeah, if you want to ask a question in person, just come up here, but we'll start with a question from online. Can the panelists tell us about any real great specific examples of innovative change in the industry that has improved workers' experiences? And then Ralph directed at you, have you experienced any great leaders or ideas at your workplace? Uh, definitely had great leaders. The, those leaders are the ones that imprint on you and they give you something that you take with you at every other job. I have accumulated all sorts of great uh, messaging, like uh, tasks or uh, ways of doing things in a way as positive that I like to spread with other people because there's another like I don't want to say like evil force of just being harsh, being cruel, get it done, get it done, get it done. So I've had a lot of really positive people, but I've also had a lot of, and I think if you said from laughing experience, managers that just, I don't know how to handle or take care of their team very well. So yeah, during the pandemic specifically, we had, we, me and one other server had to deal up uh, enforcing pandemic codes at a golf club that was during open during the pandemic and we could not, you know, enforce that. And so rather than having our manager deal with it, they just kind of did whatever they wanted to do putting everyone in danger for it. And that's, so that's a negative example, but they also had positive things. They also did value us uh, as far as us, like, are you okay? Are you all right? But as far as managing like this whole thing, they just came up short and that was unfortunate. Yeah. So as far as what changes I think our industry is making, some of it's mandated uh, through the state, like uh, having retirement plans that our employees, if we have five or more, have to be signed up for, which I think um, is great because when you do have the older workers that have collected, collected, not thought about saving, now they're at the retirement age, like, well, what do I do now? So I think that's a positive str uh, stride that we've been forced to um, get on board with and we are uh, following um, as an example. 
Uh, I mentioned earlier, some of the companies understand that uh, there is a need for their team members to move forward and move out and move beyond what they're doing. So they're paying for um, education uh, through reimbursement or full supplementing, like for um, Chipotle as an example. Uh, sick time being paid for that now. After you work a certain number of hours, you get uh, sick time accrued. And so I think those are some strides that we're making that um, takes us from servitude to a position of service uh, to our guests. And, uh, but not all companies are doing that. Uh, but you know, if our leading companies can start doing that, then the others will follow. Totally. We have an association of 2,500 restaurant owners. So we're an association of 300,000 workers in the service sector and 2,500 restaurant owners that actually believe in livable wages and better benefits for workers. It's called RAISE, Restaurants Advancing Industry Standards and Employment. It's a peer association of restaurant owners learning from one another. How do we raise wages? How do we implement benefits? Because they believe in what we call the high road to profitability, that actually treating people better, paying them better is more profitable. Because guess what? When you pay people better, you treat them better, what happens? They stay. Far less turnover far greater service and productivity. I mean, just the data is irrefutable. You can save millions of dollars in employee turnover by investing in your staff. So during the pandemic, we saw thousands of restaurants when, they, when things had to shut down and people had to take a step back. Our association grew from 800 restaurants pre-pandemic to 2,500 restaurants now because so many restaurants came forward and said, I just, when I, everything shut down, I took a breath. I said, this is a dysfunctional system. It is not working. And we have to figure out a better way because we want people to be skilled professionals that stay in this industry and have families, not move on to something else. So we saw a lot of restaurants uh, innovate. We saw one restaurant in San Francisco move to an entirely salaried system where everybody in the restaurant is treated like an actual salaried professional with benefits uh, and set schedules and it's working for them. Uh, in San Diego, there's a restaurant called Ponce's that had Mexican restaurant chain that has actually done fabulous things with wages and benefits and tips, sick days. And, I mean, just so many great innovations. One of the key things I wanted to share that a lot of people in the association are talking about is service charges. Uh, and people have different feelings about service charges, but I will tell you one thing about service charges. They take away that implicit bias of tipping. Yes. Tipping, as I said, is uh, based on race. I'm sorry. It's just irrefutable at this point. And service charges, when it's a set amount, you go to the restaurant, you don't have to think about it. It's 18, 20, whatever it is. As long as that actually goes to workers and it's transparent, if the employer is going to use a part of it, then they tell us that. They tell us that on the, on the menu. As long as it's transparent and not used for something that we don't know what it is, it is a good thing. And a lot of people are innovating with that as well. Great. Thank you, everyone, for your responses. And for anyone who has uh, a question here with our in-person audience, you can just line up here. But we're going to do one more from online for now. Um, can you let us know why don't we ever see pregnant workers? <laughs> I can tell you that. <laughs> There's a history uh, that, unfortunately, the National Restaurant Association, we keep talking about these as two entities. They really are one entity. The California Restaurant Association is the affiliate of the National Restaurant Association. They fought harder than anybody against the Pregnancy Discrimination Act. 
And so they have the ability to basically tell a pregnant woman that she can't be a server <laughs> um, because they have fought nationally against that, those kinds of uh, regulations. And there is a, there is a unfortunate, um, besides racism and sexism, there is an appearance-based ism in our industry that, uh, you know, kind of favors a certain type of server in the front of the house that will attract a certain kind of guest. I'm not saying all restaurants, but we were just talking earlier that we've done enormous amounts of research on uh, just segregation of workers by race between front and back. The fact that restaurants want to see it often even if they're people of color, lighter skinned people of color, again, the data is pretty clear, lighter skinned people of color in the front of the house, there is an appearance based uh, kind of preferences in our industry that relate to gender and race and all the other structural barriers in our industry. And one of those appearance based factors is uh, that you don't want to see a pregnant woman serving you. There's this idea that you, very old school idea that you flirt with your server and you don't want to be doing that with a pregnant. I'm just being very crass, but there, there's some very real history and politics as to why that's the case. And that is restaurant by restaurant, though. Yes. I mean, it's definitely because there, I'm, I know that there have been, but there seems to be. Well, structurally, there is a kind of a, a structural, there's been a, uh, trade association fight against having to or not being able to discriminate against pregnant women. We have another question from our online audience. Um, Ralph, what would you like your career to look like in 10 or 20 years? Um, what would you like to be doing? Well, I still like doing what I'm doing in service. Uh, I would like to have like some kind of managerial position. It would be ideal, you know, doing back of house kitchen kitchen manager specifically. I have more experience doing that. I prefer that over front of house. And I know those jobs do exist out there. And my journey's kind of been trying to get enough experience so that I can do that. And so yeah, ideally I would be doing that. Yeah. Great. Well, I did want to ask our audience um, here: How many have worked in this industry in the past or now? as a server in a hotel, you know, tourism. Yeah, most, most people have, including myself. And so I think we can all think back, or if you're still working in the industry as Ralph is, then kind of what is the path forward? Because I feel like it's something everyone knows and we all also are consumers. So you're sort of on all ends. Um, and this is, and the, you know, the industry is so large, as Saru mentioned, they are um, our friends and family members and people that we are often interacting with. Um, I want to give each of you just a quick, you know, 30 seconds to a minute, maybe give a last um, point or something that you would like to share as we close our program. Do you want to start, Leslie? Or? You can see I'm passionate about the industry. I love, I love what we do. I love serving and taking care of others. I love working with team members. I like, I love at the end of a shift the um, adrenaline that's in your system of a job well done. Um, and I know that the work that we do at my college is good work that is going to be transformative for our industry. So building off of that, I mean, imagine a world in which everybody who wants to be in this industry because it is a beautiful, beautiful thing to be able to serve people food. 
It is a beautiful thing. It's what we do in our homes when we have dinner parties. It's the way we demonstrate our love and our care in our community. What a beautiful thing. Imagine if people could choose that profession and stay in it for their lifetimes because they are treated and valued the way they need to be to stay in it for their lifetimes. We can get there. One of the first steps is raising the minimum wage in the state. And so I would love to invite anybody who'd like to get involved in this policy campaign to raise the minimum wage to join us. At, you can email us at info at onefairwage.org. We have an in-person oh. audience question. We'll come back to you, Ralph. Sure. Yeah, uh, sorry, Ralph. No worries. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm, uh, my name's Jesse. I'm a field specialist with the California Workforce Development Board. Uh, one of our uh, initiatives is the High Road Training Partnerships model, which is trying to uplift industries that um, have historically been low road industries. Um, my question is um, just, you know, because there's all these, this, these talks of workers leaving the industry, um, is there data that shows where they're going? Um, I mean, I'm thinking about here in, in the IE where the logistics industry is a big thing, and so I'm just wondering where they're going. Yeah, there is data. I can speak to that. We surveyed about 6,000 workers and asked them, why are you leaving? Why are you leaving? Where are you going? What would make you stay or come back? Um, as I mentioned, 60% of the current workforce, I'm not pe talking about people who've left, 60% of the current workforce says they are leaving. Uh, and when they asked where are they going, it's been such a wide range. Some people are going back to school. Some people go drive for Uber and Lyft. Some people go work in retail. Some people are going into construction. Some people are going uh, into all different kinds of sectors. But the universal kind of tagline of people who said where they were going is, honestly, I will do anything other than this because I can't afford to do it anymore. And so when asked what would make you stay or come back, they said, and we asked, would, would, would benefits make you come back? Would it be childcare? Would it be, you know, what, what would make you come back? And livable wages was always the top 40 or 50 percentage points higher than any other issue. 80% of workers said a livable wage would make them come back. So earlier to your question about, you know, so I, independent restaurants are saying, I'm paying more and I still can't get people to come back. I'll tell you why. It's because workers we've surveyed had said, I can't come back for an individual restaurant owner who has said, I'm gonna pay this now, especially when the California Restaurant Association, the National Restaurant Association is regularly on television saying, don't worry, things are gonna settle down, we'll all go be, be able to go back to paying you know, 15 next year. And so how is a worker who's moved on to something else, turned their life around, gonna come back unless they have a guarantee of a higher wage. And so it's gonna take policy. It's gonna take policy to get these workers, to signal to workers it's worth coming back. It's gonna be a guaranteed wage. Um, so I, I, I think there are plenty of restaurants that are doing it, but it's not enough. Nobody can do it alone. It's gotta be a level playing field so all boats rise. And I'll, I'll agree that uh, the surveyed people also said higher pay is the main reason why they left the industry. Uh, but it was followed by wanting a more reliable schedule and reliable, mm -hmm. consistent income. And you don't always get that yeah. uh, being a tipped employee um, in a restaurant. Um, and then also the ability to move up within the organization. And there yeah. are some great restaurants that promote from within um, that allow their employees to move up into leadership positions. So um, I think we need to consider that as well as some of those other reasons why. Yeah, having those pathways yeah, forward, path um, if you see that. That could be 
inspiration to stay along with some of the other benefits and the wages that you're talking about. Ralph, I want to give you the last word. Um, what were you thinking about that you would like to share with everyone who's here with us and online in terms of you know, your experience or what they should know about service workers? Uh, I think it can be like very rewarding, very rewarding for a lot of people. I've had many great friends, I have conversations, cultures mixing, music, people sing music in there. It's just this melting pot. It's super interesting, wonderful experience. Everywhere I've gone, there's so many great things. And it is unfortunate that it has to be a job that has to be looked down upon like that. And I, that you do not deserve a sustainable wage. And so, and I can imagine the amount of, like, the kind of citizens we would have if we had people that are getting paid well, doing this rewarding work, and have time to do all sorts of great stuff, make art, do all kinds of amazing things. I think that would be really beautiful. Great. Well, thank you so much. I know I was a server when I was a young person in college, and I always said that it was my backup if journalism didn't work out. But I also once wrote a story about how a lot of the skills that I use as a journalist, I learned as a server. I learned in a restaurant, not in college. Serving, you know, learning about journalism, yes, but the outgoing, the talking to read people, to learning, the math, <laughs> yes, all of that um, really came from that. And I'm sure we all yeah. raised our hands could talk about what we learned. And so I just want to say thank you again for joining us tonight. And uh, we'll be around if you would like to talk to anybody um, here. But thank you again. And please join me in uh, applauding our panelists tonight for sharing their expertise with us. <laughs>